and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Sheila Patterson, who is the Executive Director of the Ontario Library Association. The occasion for having Patterson on this podcast is Freedom to Read Week, which is not coincidentally next week. It's a chance to talk about issues of censorship and free expression, especially in the context of what we can read and access at our local and school libraries, and that makes this year's Freedom to Read Week very timely indeed. Whether the book in question is full of antiquated references and language that's now considered taboo, or... Maybe the book in question is considered by some to be too flexible or accepting to be read by young people of a certain age. It is safe to say that this debate calls for the expertise of a librarian, so we got the biggest librarian we could find. Freedom to Read Week is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Last month, there were two big stories in the news about the content of school libraries. One of the stories was from a school board in Tennessee that removed the graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman because of female nudity and graphic language. Mouse tells the story of the Holocaust through interviews with a Holocaust survivor, Spiegelman's own father. And though the Jews are depicted as mice and the Nazis are depicted as cats, the horrors of experiencing the final solution firsthand are not spared. The other story was closer to home. An English teacher delegated to the Waterloo Region School Board to say that some material on a list of books and resources for Transgender Awareness Week, she felt, were not appropriate for younger children. This included a book called Rick by Alex Geno, which is about a middle school-aged boy questioning why he doesn't want to talk about what girls are hot like his friends and classmates. The meeting became controversial when the school board chair voiced concern that the delegation was teetering on the brink of transphobia. Now, these are the ideal conditions for this year's commemoration of Freedom to Read Week. A project from the Book and Periodical Council, Freedom to Read Week is an annual event that encourages Canadians to think about and reaffirm their commitment to intellectual freedom, which is guaranteed under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's the logline. But the practical application is somewhat more complicated. Think about our debate at the Waterloo School Board. Is it not important to make books available to young people that might explain some of the thoughts and feelings that they're having? Is Alex so different from any of the multitude of other coming-of-age tales that fill our school libraries? And who gets to decide what goes and what stays? These are complicated questions with no easy answer, but we do have the expertise to talk about them on this edition of the Guelph Politicast. Sheila Patterson joins us to talk about the meaning of intellectual freedom and freedom of expression, and she will also talk about what she thinks a library should look like and what services it should provide in 2022. We also talk about censorship how to deal with misinformation and the disinformation landscape without censorship, and how we can all work towards reestablishing trust in science and authority. And finally, we will talk about how not all libraries are created equally, the digital divide in terms of access to information, and the other kinds of barriers that should remind us all that not everyone's access to information is equal. So I caught up with Sheila Patterson last week via Zoom. So, Sheila Patterson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be here. Maybe to start off, and, and we were talking about this as we were emailing back and forth, like, set, like establishing a few definitions, perhaps, you know, you being 
one of the authorities as the head of the Ontario Library Association. Um, how do you define a library in the year 2022? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I think a library is a community space. It is there for, to help people with lifelong learning, engagement, um, understanding the world around them. Uh, it's more than books. We always say in the, in the library sector, I mean, books are, are core to what the library can offer, but it's also a digital hub. So there's a lot of opportunity for members of the community to learn more about technologies, to access technology. Um, and even during the pandemic, it online has been a gathering place for communities um, who can access resources, um, join in programming. Um, but of course, libraries are also open for people to come in. Um, so yeah, it, I think it's, it's what the library, it's what the community needs it to be. And that's, I'm talking about a public library. There's different types of libraries as well. Right. So we've got obviously got school libraries who are uh, supporting curriculum needs of students. And we have um, college and university libraries, uh, health libraries, all sorts of libraries. Mm -hmm. Not all libraries are the same is what we're getting at. Yeah, they're all, they're all a little different. And if we start to think about uh, different libraries in the context of intellectual freedom, um, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting discussion. So um, I know there's been some recent concerns around things that are in school library collections, for example, or things that might be removed from school library collections. And of course, uh, school libraries resist censorship always. But they also don't keep everything in their collection um, mm. all the time, right? So they're going to re be removing books that are outdated, books that no longer serve the curriculum needs. Um, some of the books that they may remove from their library collection, would be, you would find in a public library collection, right? Because it has some historical significance um, and uh, it, it, it has maybe broader public appeal. It serves a different purpose. Um, and the same with the college or university library. In fact, in, in, in those libraries, it's really interesting because things that we may have removed from a school or a public library because the content is no longer suitable or it's really outdated, um, it might be kept in a college or university library because it's a research, it becomes a research um, uh, piece for, for, for students who are researching the history of something. Right. I want to get to what books go into the library and what books go out of the library, but you did mention intellectual freedom. And I, I was also thinking about freedom of expression too. And I think both of these, in, in the debates you were referencing, both of these terms come up, but I feel like, and, and this may be just sort of my own on the ground experiences that people throw around these terms and they mm -hmm. have a very specific definition for them that may not be the clinical definition that someone like you would use. Is, is that your feeling? It is. I think, um, I, I do think that there are some different interpretations or perhaps not a deeper understanding. And of course, it's not something that we all really consider until we read or see or hear something that really offends us. And we're like, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. Um, but yes, I think to, to sort of set the framework and to say that in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we do talk about freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communications. And in Canada, we view this as um, are right. We, we live in a democratic society and we believe that people must be free to discuss matters of public policy, to criticize governments, offer their own solutions to social problems, um, put out their own viewpoints and opinions. Um, and certainly, in, if you think about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there are some limitations. Um, so, for example, um, freedom of expression could be limited by laws against hate propaganda or child pornography. So there are limits to right. <clears throat> what can be put out there. And of course, 
you know, as Canadians, we can put anything out there that we want, but in some cases there will be repercussions, right? So Mm -hmm. that's, that's the other piece in thinking about intellectual freedom or freedom of expression and intellectual freedom is really being able to access um, the ideas and, 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 uh, and, and media that you want to be able to access because you're interested in it. You want to learn more. Um, you want to be entertained. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a very broad scope. The thing I keep thinking about with this is the absolutes. Um, and we see this sort of with what's going on in Ottawa. Um, and I mean, also sort of regionally in my own backyard that that mm-hmm. people think of freedom as an absolute um and that's uh, maybe, maybe i could be off but that, that's always sort of struck me as an american idea like freedom of speech in america is kind of absolute like almost yeah. like almost literally right up to the line of yelling fire in a crowded theater which is the example I always used yeah but in canada i guess because our constitution is somewhat more modern up to 1982 there is a kind of more I guess, more nuanced understanding that rights are also rights and freedoms are also a negotiation that there are certain things we accept, but there is a line that we can walk up to as well. It's true. And our legislation is actually different than the United States. There are, there are similarities between our understandings of intellectual freedom and and, and free access to information and that sort of thing. But in Canada, we do have, um, we do have, uh, concerns around hate speech, um, willful, willful promotion of hatred and, and those kinds of um, those kinds of issues. So I think that's where a lot of the tension lies when we, you know, when we read or hear about sort of extreme viewpoints or uh, viewpoints that are quite frankly, misinformation, right? Mm. And so, you know, what are the limits to intellectual freedom or freedom of expression when you think about that? And um, one of the challenges that people face is that often, um, if, 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 in order to censor, uh, often it becomes a legal challenge, right? And so that's usually where these things end up resting is if it gets taken to that extent where uh, people or a person wants something to be shut down, or they protest against uh, something that has been said or done, um, it, it, it becomes a legal matter. So mm-hmm. it's but but really, you know, it's our enjoyment of intellectual freedom and anti-censorship is very broad. It, it really is. There's a lot of leeway, which is uh, challenging for people when they do come across opinions and ideas that are, are they feel are, are really contrary to what they believe in, or they feel are marginalizing or, um, you know, offensive or concerning. That, that's when we get into the tensions with uh, freedom of, of expression or intellectual freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing those tensions play out because you have a lot of people who are reading things online about the pandemic or about public health precautions that are mm-hmm. not true. And the, the, the basic approach to that is, well, to shut down the sources of those information is censorship. But at the same time, how do you not go to the censorship place while still making sure that people are getting at, or are people I guess it's two-pronged, right? People need to have faith that the sort of established sources of information are not lying to them. And yes. and how do you convince people to not invest themselves in information that's wrong um, without having without just like outright shutting down that information source? 
Well, that's, I mean, if you know the answer to that, then I'd love to hear it. But I, <laughs> but I, I, do, think I do think there's approaches to this, right? I think, so I think there's uh, the going on the uh, offensive or defensive, mm. which is uh, making sure people are prepared for being able to discern between truth and, and, and disinformation or misinformation. Um, you know, I think that starts when you're a student, when you're a young person and you have parents who understand, you know, how to guide um, your child through understanding uh, what's true and what's not true. But I think this is where schools play and education plays a critical role. Um, of course, we have school profession, school library professionals who are part of our membership at the Ontario Library Association, and this is what they do. They, um, they help students um, be critical in their analysis of sources, right? And help them understand, you know, here's a statement or here's a book or here's a video. Um, what do you think about this? Uh, what do you think, who, who do you think created this? What do you think their motivation is behind creating this? Um, is this based on any kind of research? Or is this a media source where it's a legitimate, um, it's a legitimate media, you know? Um, and there are, there is legitimate media um, that we can take a look at and, and they'll st it, there's still a viewpoint but um, we know that uh, with media, some media that they're the facts, uh, they're, they're fact checkers. Um, there's research that's being done. There's investigative reporting, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's um, really important for, for us all to um, think about uh, where is the source? What, what is the source of information? Why are you the authority in saying what you've just said, you know? Um, and I think that's one way to break it down. I think also when we have these polarizing conversations, um, I think it's really important to um, to have a conversation. To you know, if somebody says something to you, and you think that cannot be true. Like that doesn't sound right. Um, to say to, to to have that discussion to say, well, that's interesting. Where did you where did you hear this? Like what 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 source was that based on? Was it was it based on a medical research, for example, or a particularly uh, a recognized journal? Was it just sort of a uh, somebody's Facebook posting? Like, what was that? You know, I think it's just, we, we need to ask questions about where this information is coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's a two way street. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's not a street, I guess anybody wants to, to sort of live on because um, I mean, I try to have those conversations when I go to, you know, anti-lockdown rallies and people tell me about something they saw online that disproves mm -hmm. masks work for example yeah and you know trying to have that conversation and they'll point out to you know whatever website.com that they got it from and then they'll say well where are you getting your information on and you say well i'm listening to dr anthony fauci or yeah. our own local medical officer of health and they get this look on their face like oh you're you're one of the sheeple or whatever right you know yeah. i I guess the intellectual curiosity about this does not necessarily go both ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, again, it's, it's how people build and develop their beliefs, I suppose. Right. And, mm. and sort of understanding where they're coming from that, from that perspective. But again, I think, you know, I, I, I do feel strongly that if we can help our students and children start to really think about these things as part of their education, as part of their, the, the parents uh, helping them with, with reading and research and, and then homework. Um, I, I think that's where we want people to have access to a full range of ideas, right? Then mm. they need to decide 
okay, this is what I think. This is, I believe in this, or I understand this, or you know what? I don't believe in that. And, and so, you know, I think, I think that um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that we have here in Canada, I think it, it puts a lot of respect on us in, mm. in Canada and, 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 and it expects us to, you know, live our lives the way that we're going to be living them and to, and to do the work, you know, and I think we do see that. I think we're very fortunate to live in a country where there's lots of great ideas. There's lots of interesting perspectives and, um, uh, and we have education and, and all of those good things. So I think there's hope. <laughs> I hope you're right. I the the thing that you were kind of getting at, and I was thinking about as you were talking, was yes, there should be sort of more of an education, or more of an effort in in sort of schools to to lay it out for young people. You know, where does the information come from? How do you decide if it is um, good information or bad information? Mm-hmm. Um, but we could start that today. Yeah. But there are grown adults who listen to Alex Jones from InfoWars or listen to um, Tucker Carlson. I, 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 and I've had this conversation with other people, you know, who, who are, who advocate strongly. And I don't disagree at all that, you know, th- this should be part of the, 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 the basic education of, of kids and like, how do you navigate the, the information ecosystem? But at the same time, are we not letting down sort of the adults who have fallen prey. And I guess, are we going to end up having to write them off that they're just going to live in a disinformation ecosystem until the end of the days or until they decide that they're going to pull themselves out? Well, I, 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 you know, I think to try to change a person's mind is very difficult, but to make Mm -hmm. sure they have access to ideas and information is incredibly important. Right. And so that again is, is something that we enjoy here in this country is uh, we're not being fed propaganda and that's it. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we have to rely on people to use their good judgment um, and to evolve and to change. Um, And certainly that happens, right? Like people will change their minds. Um, Not everybody on certain topics, but I think that's all we can hope for. And I think this is, again, if we circle back to the purpose of a public library, this is this is a community treasure that pe- everyone has access to, right? And and it's there for you to, to learn and to question your own beliefs, right? And I think that's a it's, a, it's a good sign of human growth that as we grow and as we age, we still question some of our, our, our you know, uh, assumptions and beliefs and are willing to learn. And that would be my, encouragement of people is to always, always be learning, always mm-hmm. be learning. Mm-hmm. You've been, you, you know, you brought up libraries, um, obviously as a librarian. Um, and I, I, when we started emailing, I asked you, or I, I said, like, one of the things I wanted to talk about was like, um, access to information and mm-hmm. equitable access to information. You came back to me and said, well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. And I think one of the big ways or at least the way I was thinking initially was the, di- the digital divide. So, yeah. I mean, not everybody has internet, not everybody has high speed internet. Yeah. And on top of that, speaking of access, um, not everybody has the ability to pay for a newspaper subscription online yeah. or a couple of different newspaper subscriptions online, because in, you know, in this idea of intellectual freedom, you don't want to kind of limit yourself to one source. So I guess, how can libraries break down the the digital inequity? Uh, so I think um, 
you know, one thing that we've done as an association is we, we've advocated to a provincial government about the need for expanded broadband in communities because we're seeing it on the front line with our public libraries, right? They're the folks that say to us, you know, we do provide internet access to our, our communities, but we are challenged by um, broadband infrastructure. So we did actually, re- our, our sector received some funding recently to start to expand that, right? So th- this is a very good sign. Um, so we're very happy that there is some investment in, in broadband infrastructure, but it's more than that too, right? You know, people need to be able, it's it's a, um, it's a literacy, right? It's a, it's a information and a digital literacy to understand, you know, how do I use digital resources? And this is, again, this is critical for public libraries. This is where they come into play in helping communities through programs, um, helping them access um, things like Service Ontario through, through the public library. There's all sorts of resources and, and ways that they can support people. So we see it as, um, fundamental that people have digital access. There are a lot of interesting programs that public libraries have offered things like um, lending and borrowing Wi-Fi hotspots um, as it, it, there, it's a temporary measure, but it gets people accessing the internet at home, trying it out. It's, it's affordable um, in that it's free from the library, but it, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. So um, we see a strong role and we see digital literacy as still a concern. I think a lot of us just take it for granted. Mm. There's still a percentage of folks in Canada who don't have access and who don't know how to use computers. They don't know um, what's available to them. And so as we get more and more online, I mean, even if you think of the the vaccine um, passports that have to be digitally presented for the most part, um, libraries are helping with that as well. They're helping people download. They're helping people actually laminate their um, their uh, vaccination uh, proof of vaccination. So they're doing a lot of things there, which none of uh, a lot of us don't really think about. But it, there's right. a demand for that. There's a lot of built in and some uh, built in and some assumptions, um, particularly at a government level. Everybody has the same access to technology, which. I mean, obviously yeah, isn't true. true. Yeah, it's not true. And, you know, the other thing that, that um, is interesting is around um, disability and accessibility. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, on one hand, digital technologies have opened up a world of access, potentially opened up a world of access for people who, for example, may have a vision loss or print disability or a learning disability such as dyslexia. There's there's technology that can really help people with these things. But um, if if digital content is not produced in a way that can be accessed by that technology, then that is uh, a barrier to access to information, right? And so that's really of importance to libraries as well. How can we ensure that regardless of format, people or ability or disability, people can actually access the information that they need to to get ahead with their lives? The technology also kind of, I mean, and it, whether it's sort of the access question or if it's the sort of um, for people with disabilities too, it makes us assume that there's more of an equal footing. And, and a really small example of this is that there was a committee meeting here in Guelph earlier this week and the chair started reading the motions that appeared on screen because the assumption is everyone who's watching this at home, like everyone can read what's there on the screen. But that's not true. You're no. not. You're, you're automatically throwing up a barrier to people with a visual impairment. Exactly, and um, you know, closed captioning and accessible digital technologies 
Um, the, you know, these are things that are, the technology has made this available. And I think we all need to learn more about it if we are pr providing information or uh, making information available to learn more about that and to think about, um, you know, I remember once somebody said to me, we were talking about uh, having accessible formats, braille and, and talking books and audiobooks in the in the library. And someone said, well, nobody with a disability uses the library. And, you know, the answer to that was, well, no, of course they wouldn't because there's, you know, there's nothing that's accessible. This was years ago. Right. But it's, okay. it's like, you know, you're not going to see people who have a disability uh, if you're not offering anything that's accessible, right? And so you want to be inclusive and you want to be able to provide your services and programs to everyone because otherwise it is a, it is an access to information. It's a barrier to access to information issue, right? It's another component I think of intellectual freedom and freedom of, of expression. It's a catch 22 though, right? You know, it's like, well, we, we can't offer this service because we see no one asking yeah. for the service. <laughs> and it's like, well, no one's asking for the service because we're not offering it. Yes. Yeah. So it's just, you know, for people to think about that, it's, it's, you know, and I think people want to be inclusive. So it's to, to think about that and to mm -hmm. reach out to the, reach out to those segments of your community, those organizations and say, how can we be more accessible? Do librarians get, or, or libraries themselves as sort of institutions get hit with these, this same, these same ideas, like not to get too far into sort of what we had just talked about a little while ago, but people see gatekeepers um, and, and think, you know, these are, I don't want to say bad people, but you know, the, the, the widespread distrust of authority, do librarians get swept up into that? As a, as as a kind of a cultural attack. <laughs> do you mean? Do you mean? Do do libraries are are their libraries as seen as gatekeepers or authorities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly. I mean, now just it's a that's a really interesting question, Adam, because you know we are a public entity, right? Mm -hmm. And we are public libraries are governed by independent public library boards, so they're not a political entity, right? Um, and there's a reason for that, and that's to ensure that uh, the things that people can find and access in a library is, is very, very broad. So libraries will have they, there's policy and procedure that guides their work because you know we all have. Uh, situations or stories where somebody is objected to something in the library. So we can't just sort of ad hoc say, make decisions on the fly. We have to be driven by our policies and our procedures. So uh, libraries will have um, selection policies, which is policies that guide, you know, here's what we're going to put in the collection. Here's what we, you know, this is not what we put in our, this is not what we offer in the library because this is not our purpose. Um, so we do have that kind of policy. We also have um, policies around uh, folks that may challenge some materials in the collection and there's processes for that. So, you know, because again, we're all people who work in libraries and, and we ourselves are offended by some of the stuff that we'll find in our own library, right? Because it may be up against our, 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 uh, our beliefs and our ideals. Um, but that doesn't mean we are going to take it out of the library. It means somebody in the community is interested in whatever that book or that film or um, video game even, because libraries mm. also provide access to video games. And, um, you know, we'll get questioned on, on content, et cetera. So we're very driven by our, you know, if you go to Guelph uh, Public Library site, you can find their policies on there and their statements around intellectual freedom and, and um, the material selection policy. It's, they're very broad. I mean, they're, they're not terribly specific. They're very right. much like we want to be able to support all viewpoints and interests in our community. Um, so, you know, 
some of the challenges that we have sometimes are, for example, if a book is on a bestseller list, but it's very controversial or it's purporting a very narrow perspective on something, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we may ourselves not be thrilled with having that book in that collection, but it's on the bestseller list. It's of interest to the public. We don't know why the public might be interested in that book. They may be interested in that book because they actually believe the content in it and they want to have their values reinforced or they may absolutely not believe that and they wanna understand the other perspective. Why would someone write a book about this? Why is it on the bestseller list? It's an odious idea, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of um, thing that we have to think about for public libraries. We can't, if, (laughs) you know, there's a a famous quote by a librarian. I'm just gonna look it up here (laughs) because it gets quoted a lot. It's a truly great library contains something in it to offend everyone. And that's (laughs) quoted by a librarian uh, named Joe Godwin. Um, But it's true. And and we do face this on a, on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. And I guess that that's a perfect sort of setup for the current debate right now, because you have some people who are looking at materials and saying, well, these books or sources are passe. They include thoughts that are outmoded, outdated, Mm -hmm. offensive. And then you have, people on the other side looking at like new books, particularly books about um, people with different sexualities and different Mm -hmm. genders. um, And they're saying like, that's, you know, having those books is a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. And I, and I guess, you know, librarians are in a difficult position where you you kind of have to defend it from both sides. Right. (laughs) We do. I mean, I, I, you know, um, you know, we, we again will collect um, anything that's published that that is we think that fits the the criteria of the collection. And again, just going back to my earlier point, different libraries have different criteria, right? right. So, for example, a school library is a good example. There may be a real amazing classic, and I always I, this this is the example I use ad nauseum. So, for example, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a you know it's a it's a classic. People have read it. Um, you know, a public library for sure will have a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. School library, because they only have so much space, they might actually say, you know what, this is not serving our curriculum anymore. There's, there are more current books that, um, that uh, provide the story that supports the lessons that we want our, our kids to learn. Uh, so we're going to pick these books instead. And we're going to get, you know, this book we're going to get rid of. And so that's okay. You know, uh, it, it's not a censorship decision. It's not okay when it's a censorship decision. And that's, that's why we have our the policies in place and processes for people to object to materials. Um, but uh, it's true. Like it's important to look, I mean, the recent uh, example early, late last year was the Dr. Seuss publisher, right? Dr. Right. Seuss, um, the publishers of Dr. Seuss materials, uh, withdrew a number of, of books because of really racist uh, illustrations. Um, and so libraries had to go through that process to say, okay, what do we do about this? Like, this has now been removed from the publisher. Do we keep this in our collection? Do we remove it? And had, you know, it, it seems like, oh, of course, remove it, right? But there's a discussion that has to happen because we do have to uphold you know, access to information and intellectual freedom. We have to think about these things very carefully. It cannot be a knee-jerk reaction when we're removing materials from a library. And interestingly, I mean, the debate that popped up around that was not about the fact it was the decision of the Zeus estate to pull those books. The fact that they were not the most popular Dr. Zeus books. Um, the fact that 
the, a part of the response was that people were not buying the offending books. They went out and bought the cat in the hat and the Lorax and yes. I mean, Hanks and yeah. Ham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's, a, there's also, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a film buff, but I mean, there are things like birth of a nation, which is mm-hmm. highly propagandistic, but it's, yes. it's also the first feature length film yeah. that a Hollywood studio produced. Yeah. Things like, the crows in Dumbo or depictions of, you know, speedy Gonzalez and the Looney Tunes cartoons or something like song of the South, which Disney emphatically will not release, even though they use a song from that movie still to this day in their marketing. Yeah. 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 I mean, and again, you know, this is something we struggle with in the library sector. And again, it's, you know, if we look at different libraries, so for example, all those examples you just provided, you would probably quite easily find them in an academic library for research purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, School libraries, probably not like this is not, these are not the, um, uh, the the lessons that we want to, you know, engage our students with, except for when we are talking about censorship and, um, uh, you know, literacy skills, etc. And so certainly some materials would be used in, you know, here is here, here is the trajectory of society, you know, this is kind of where we've come from, and <laughs> we need to learn from this. And um, so I think there's value in those books as a teaching teaching tool. I mean, the same thing with the Tintin books, like there's a few mm. Tintin books that uh, public libraries actually moved them to some of them to the reference collection, because they knew that there were still because public libraries also serve a reference purpose or research purpose. Um, and so they knew there were people in like, a lot of authors use public libraries for research purposes as well. So to have those materials available to people to, to so they can understand um, you know, the norms of the day, so to speak, uh, is really important. We can't erase history, um, right. but we don't, depending on, you know, what type of library we're talking about, not all materials are going to be in all types of libraries. And it's also a matter of like the user, right? And it, this is to getting back to your To Kill a Mockingbird example. Um, that is probably not relevant. Um, I mean, in, in terms of like referring back to the lives of of people in 2022, um, even people of color, as opposed yeah. to like, you know, if, if it's a choice between having something like To Kill a Mockingbird or something written by, uh, you know, an accomplished black author like Tanahasi Coates, yeah, you're probably going to choose the Coates book yeah. over the Harper Lee book. And if you're building a library in 2022, or especially in particular for, you know, school kids who have no frame of reference for um, segregation in the South yeah. in the 1950s. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I could, I could see a scenario in high school where a teacher might discuss the issues that are in those books from a historical perspective. So to say, you know, here's four books over since in the past 50 years, like let's discuss um, the change in how people thought and, 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 and where we are now, that could be one possibility, I think. Um, but I, you know, again, in an educational, it's so important in an educational setting, I think, to actually tackle these topics and, and to uh, help students understand, you know, pr- perspectives over time and, and biases and racism over time as well. I mean, and along with that, too, is I know that in next door to me in Waterloo region, there's a lot of questions about books featuring characters who are transgender 
mm-hmm. but I could also see a, a kid in a, in a Waterloo Region school or any school for that matter, you know, maybe they walk across the road uh, yeah. to school where the, the crosswalk is painted in the trans flag and they'd be wondering themselves, well, what makes a transgender person different from me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the school library, right? Who can offer you some insight. Well, and to see yourself reflected, right? Yeah. If you're trans, then you need to you need to be able to read about yourself. You know, you need to be able yeah. to relate to materials. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, you know, certainly a, a, a book that with, about a trans character uh, would not be removed from a school library collection where there are school library professionals. And that's the other concern that we have as an association is that there's a uh, school libraries are essential to. Uh, students uh needs right in in terms of their even post grad like in terms of their success at college and university they need to be able to discern they need to be able to understand these concepts and um we're seeing parts of the province where there just are no school libraries or school library professionals at all they are um we still have school libraries in like guelph of course has has great school libraries um uh but we're seeing them in smaller communities um, disappear. And so that's a real concern. And we're starting, you know, listening to our uh, college and university librarians, they're starting to see some concerns co- with students coming in that may not have had access to a school library mm-hmm. um, in, in high school. So these are things that we're looking at to, you know, because again, we're living in an information age, full stop. It's, it's all around us. We need to be able to understand it. And we need to be able to, um, navigate through uh through this for success in life and i mean even for someone like me who grew up quite privileged i had access to a public library it was literally a five minute walk from my house that's awesome Um, (laughs) i would have loved it my library was a five minute walk (laughs) um you know i had access to the school library but you know i went to university and they didn't use the dewey decimal system it was a whole other yeah <laughs> kettle of fish and so i had to actually go to the, the, the university of guelph library offer you know come to this one hour session and we'll teach you how to use the library yeah. and then you know so it's even growing up in sort of like being privileged with an access to information um you still have you know sometimes barriers that you have to navigate. Definitely. I, I think that's a very good point. I think it is challenging. Um, uh, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's information literacy, again, is, I, I know when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm older, and um, I, I don't know how it, it took me, it took me till I got to library school to figure it out. And I, I remember when I was in library school, because I did an art in art history degree before that. And I thought, where was, where, where was this understanding of how to use the library? Because art and art history was intensively research oriented. And I was like, okay, now I know everything, but it's a bit late, but it's okay. <laughs> but yes, I think it's, um, I think the educational piece is, is very important in helping students navigate. Another resource I just wanted to mention a shout out mm. is, um, in terms of if parents are listening and are interested in learning more about media literacy, there's an organization called Media Smarts and they have a site, uh, it's called mediasmarts.ca and they have all sorts of really great resources, questions you can ask or help your your child understand, you know, question the materials that they're looking at um, and help them think more deeply about uh, some of the things they're using, even things like video games or um, podcasts or whatever, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, so that's a really good resource, I think, for for parents to take a look at. All right. I will throw in a link for media smarts uh, when, when we come along here. Um, I wanted to come back around to the matter of trust and gatekeeping and all that, because, you know, you're, 
you're laying out here how librarians make their decisions to include what and why in collections. But I also see this, and it's it's kind of more of a, an American phenomenon, but American phenomenon make it up here eventually, that, that this like questioning of teachers and you know this you know the people who are saying like why are teachers making decisions about what kids can access without my yeah. input and yeah. i guess how do how do you we all work together as a community the librarians the teachers the parents yeah. to make sure that they understand the decisions librarians are making about the books in whether it's the school library the public library whatever and so that this doesn't fall into one of these political slap fights that we see at like the Tennessee school board that banned yeah. the Art Spiegelman graphic novel and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, this, this, what you're doing right now, just having a discussion about this, I think is important, right? Because it helps people think a little bit more deeply about objecting to materials and processes. Um, so I think, uh, uh, again, going back to pr the process part, right, the selection and, and being very transparent. So school boards have uh, selection policies, and that is really, you know, here's here's the decisions we make about adding materials to the collection. Here's the kinds of things we put in the library. And when I talk about I, things, I'm talking about online content, um, digital content, I'm talking about books, etc. Um, so they're setting a framework, like here's what we're going to have. They'll have um, statements around, um, usually in those about intellectual freedom or freedom of expression. And it's always tied to curriculum. So I think it's, it, again, uh, what's really important is, is that school boards support this, right? And these policies are driven by school boards, but they rely on their education professionals to inform um, what goes into these things. Like, here's the professional practice. Like, there is a professional practice around this across our country. Um, and so if people have done the work, they've done the research, they have the educational background. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, this is a really trite example, but, you know, <laughs> we don't expect people to go in and choose basketballs and baseball bats and stuff like for the, you know, for sports program. I mean, right. I know it's a different thing, but the, the idea of the interference piece, I think it's very important for parents to um, be concerned with what their children are accessing and reading and have ask questions about that. I mean, there's no, no one is saying that that shouldn't happen. Um, and often though, what happens when a parent has a concern about a book is that a discussion does happen and it's fine. Mm. You know, there's an understanding and it's like, so what we hear about in the media are things that kind of go to a more, a more extreme level. Right. Um, but there's always discussions and we have a reading program. We have the Forest of Reading Program, which is Canada's largest reading program for kids. And um, every, every year and every cat reading category will get some concern coming from a parent or, or, uh, or someone to say, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure this book should be in this particular reading category, or I'm not sure about the content or, and then we have a discussion and generally uh, folks are, are happy. The other interesting thing when people object to a, an item, often when you we say, well, have you read it? The answer is usually no. <laughs> and then the person reads it and is like, okay, I got it. I'm okay with it. But I, I think um, I think if people are going to object to something, they need to read it and they need to watch it. They need to know what they're objecting to. They can't just have someone say, well, this was about this. And so I don't think my child should should have actually have access to that. Well, you know, read it and, and then have an opinion. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't that like the source of a lot of these controversies is, you know, people don't read past the headline people, yeah. you know, I, I hear, you know, politicians say this all the time. It's like, I had a hundred emails 
about this policy. And then, you know, I, I, I send an email back explaining to what it's all about. And then people are cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you've had the discussion, so it's good. Right. right? Like, this is, like to me, it's an opportunity to discuss these things and to actually maybe learn something too. Right. Cause it could be a topic that people are thinking, Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't think it should be out there. I don't think people should be having access to it. And then to have that discussion about that particular topic could actually be very helpful. I mean, I think the other thing that we have to think about when we object to something in, in our minds is to say, you know, would I want someone else deciding for me, I can't listen to that. I can't read it. Mm. I can't, I don't, I can't watch it. Like, I don't want someone else deciding that for me. If something is out there in the universe, I want to be able to decide for myself. And that's a two-way street, of course. Yeah. No, yeah. That whether it's something from the past, like if it's Tom Sawyer or if it's mm-hmm. something about uh, a protagonist who is asexual and struggling with that, it, yeah. you know, no matter which way you look at it, I guess the, 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 maybe to put a cherry on this, you know, the key to, and we haven't really addressed freedom to read, which is why we're talking, but I mean, the sort of the key thing to keep in mind about freedom to read week is the idea of sort of challenging oneself to tackle ideas or materials that perhaps other people would prefer we didn't. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yes, I think as soon as you find yourself objecting to something or are uncomfortable with something and you want to do something about it, you need to learn about it, right? Mm. And um, you don't have to, of course, anybody can do whatever they want. But I, you know, <laughs> I, I think you, you, you want to learn about it, you want to understand what it is you're objecting to. Mm-hmm. Well, Sheila Patterson, uh, I appreciate all your time and your insight today. And uh, Happy Freedom to Read Week. And um, thank you. And that's just so I can do a plug for that. That's yes. uh, February 20th. And uh, freedomtoreadweek.ca is a, is a website that um, has all sorts of interesting resources and materials for educators, for parents, for other people. Providing information like a true librarian. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> thank you, Sheila. <laughs> thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate it. And once again, that was Sheila Patterson. Freedom to Read Week runs all next week from February 20th to 26th. And you can find all sorts of materials at freedomtoread.ca. You can also learn more about the Ontario Library Association at accessola.com. That is A-C-C-E-S-S-O-L-A dot com. And if you want to cut out the proverbial middleman or woman, you can visit your local branch of the Guelph Public Library, and they can probably point you in the right direction if you wanted to ask them about some challenging materials. Just visit guelphpl.ca and click on the Ask Me tab to forward your question or query. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter, and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com if you would like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico. 
you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.